Run again. I had a suggestion a few weeks back that we put a timer up on the screen so we kind of know how much time we have. So maybe we'll do that next week and have a little countdown to how much more time that you have. But, uh, you know, we've been uh, going through God's word for, um, you know, we started in Revelation about two years ago, I guess now. And we've been going backwards this time. We've already gone through it forwards. Now we're going through it backwards. And so that's what, you know, go through the word forwards and backwards. So uh, we started in Revelation. We've done Jude. We've done 3rd, 2nd, 1st John. We've done 1st and 2nd Peter. So this morning we're starting a new book. Turn to the book of James. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, the first eight verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get a regular print or a large print to you. Just let us know. Write to your seat so you can follow along with us. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. That's it. I'm done. Forget it. Change my mind. Just need some water. I should probably put the lid on this too. Now, James chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we read, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for you doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind." For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, last week we looked at uh, Peter's message, Growing in Grace. This morning we're going to look at uh, my title being Growing in Faith. Growing in Faith. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together in this place. Lord, to open up your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you for giving us understanding of your word application from your word, not only to us as a church as a whole, but to us individually, Lord. We know you want to speak to our hearts. You want to move in our lives. You want to give us direction and purpose and hope. And we thank you, Lord, that through your word, you do all of that for us. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again this morning. They're, they're not saved. Lord, would you especially speak to their heart Help them see the need to surrender their lives to you and to put their faith and trust in you. So bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, each New Testament letter has its own special theme, its own special purpose. As we begin these lessons in the book of James this morning, we'll see that these Jewish Christians who James were writing to were having some problems in their own personal lives and in their church fellowship as well. Some of the things that they were going through, difficult testings that were causing some to consider leaving the church. They were facing the temptation to sin. Some of the believers were catering to the rich while others were being robbed by the rich. 
church members were, were, were competing for teaching positions. One of the major problems was the failure on the part of many to live what they professed to believe. Their walk did not match their talk. The tongue, their, their, their words was a serious problem, even to the point of creating wars and divisions among them. Worldliness, another problem that was going on in this church. Now, as we look at that short list of problems, it doesn't appear to be too much different from the problems that, problems that we see plaguing many churches today. Do we have, you know, uh, in our churches, people who are suffering for one reason or another? Aren't there people who talk one way but walk another? Isn't worldliness a serious problem? Are there not Christians who cannot control their tongues? See, James is not discussing a display of miscellaneous problems. All of these problems had one uh, common cause, spiritual immaturity. These Christians were simply not growing in their faith. Therefore, James is a very practical book. And many have a problem with that because it is so practical. They say it's, it's too practical. It's, it's very pointed. See, there's not one of us in this church, as we go through the book of James, that we will come out of it untouched. Because it deals... Uh, head on with sin. And it deals with all of our shortcomings as believers. James is so direct with dealing in each area of our lives that we cannot escape its teaching. At some point, it's going to point right at you. It's going to point right at me. Reminds me of the story of a southern preacher that was speaking out against gambling. And the lady in the front row was so excited about the, the preacher naming sin. Clearly, when he spoke about gambling, she shouted, Preach it, brother! Then when he spoke about drunkenness, she shouted, Amen. Then he got to dancing and flirting, and she was really excited by this time and shouted, Preacher, brother, Amen, Hallelujah. Then he got to gossip and backbiting, and the lady leaned over to the person next to her and said, He's not preaching now. Now he's meddling. <laughs> I bet that as we begin to study James, before too long, many of us are going to say, He is indeed meddling. And we need to have our sin meddled with. God wants to speak to his people because he loves us and wants to give us direction and instruction. He wants for our lives to demonstrate sanctification. But more, more and most importantly is he wants us to grow in our faith. Because faith in Jesus Christ affects our lives in many ways. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So by faith we believe that he is God, that he's a reward of those who diligently seek him. We seek to please him with all of our lives by faith. Christian faith isn't an invisible attitude. It's revealed by our life. And true faith is revealed by our actions based upon the word of God. See, as we study this book of James, uh, we'll, uh, James will reveal to us that faith endures trials. Faith resists temptation. Faith obeys the word of God. Faith produces works. Faith is not prejudice. Faith is more than just words or knowledge. Faith controls the tongue. Faith is revealed by obedience and holds fast to God's promises. Faith chooses wisdom from God and not wisdom from the world. Faith chooses to submit to God and resist the devil. And faith waits patiently for the return of the Lord. And in a word, faith works. So James is going to help us to grow in our faith. 
Now we know this was written around 46 to 49 AD. It's regarded as one of the earliest epistles written. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. Number one, the promoter of faith. Number two, the problems of faith. And number three, the prayer of faith. Let's begin with who wrote this book. Obviously James, point number one, the promoter of faith. James begins his epistle with with these words, verse one. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now there are those who say that this James was James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. But there's a major problem with that. The biggest is that James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred before this was written. So it's kind of hard to write if you're dead. So, Besides, the issues covered in this letter are issues in the church much later after James was martyred. There are those who say, well, this was James, the son of Alphaeus, also called James the Less. The problem with that is we know little about this man. Even though we know he was an apostle, he doesn't seem to have any real position of leadership in the church. Now, I believe this James is none other than the Lord's uh, half-brother. He's mentioned nine times in significant ways other than here in the book of James. I like comedian Michael Jr. If you've ever seen him, he does a comedy sketch about James. To which he says, he goes, while I was reading my Bible, I found out that Jesus had a little brother. He says, how much pressure could that have been? Jesus is your big brother. How many times would he have, would he have to hear growing up, why can't you be more like Jesus, James? He says, probably everyone thought that James could do what Jesus did. But he couldn't, because he's just James. He says, remember the wedding banquet? Jesus turned water to wine. But they don't tell you about the next banquet. Jesus left early, and they were running out of wine, and everybody looked at James. Man, that's something that must happen. Your brother made some wine. You just going to stand there with your sandals on? <laughs> Can't you make some Kool-Aid or something? Pretty funny. All that to say that this is Jesus' half-brother. We know that James rose early in importance to the early church. We know that he exercised leadership within the early church. Acts chapter 15, we're told that he was over that first council of the church, the first meeting together. Tradition tells us that he had a nickname, Old Camel Knees, because he was always down on his knees praying and spent much time in prayer. We also know that he had this special ministry to the Jewish believers. With that in mind, it's interesting to look at the way he opens this epistle and, and how he calls himself. He addresses himself. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, look at James' perception of himself. He says, I'm just a servant of God. That's noteworthy. Because many times we, the world has a tendency to drop names. Oh, I just, you know, I know this guy. And, and well, you know, Certainly James, being the Lord's brother, could have done that. I mean, he had ground to poor rank, didn't he? Because he said, listen, he could have said, listen, listen, I'm not anybody here, okay? I, I know the silence years. I, I know, you know, I'm the younger brother of the Lord. But he doesn't do that. He simply says, he's a bondservant. Listen, it's the same way for us as believers. It doesn't matter where you are in the social ladder, on the economic ladder, who you are related to. What church you go to or used to go to, it doesn't matter if you're a pastor, an elder, a Sunday school teacher. We're all just servants of Jesus Christ, serving Him with the jobs that He has assigned to us. And God has given us gifts in our lives that we might serve Him with, that we might encourage and strengthen one another with. We're saved to serve. Now to serve, James uh, had to be saved. And even though James 
lived in the same family as Jesus growing up, he still needed to come to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that for even his brothers did not believe in him. It wasn't until after the resurrection that things changed. And James, along with his other brothers, were found, according to Acts 1.14, there in the upper room with the disciples and some other believers. In fact, it says there, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So the idea that Mary didn't have children after Jesus is just a fallacy. It's there in Scripture. So James is the promoter of faith, grew in faith as he came to know Jesus, not only as his brother, but as his, as his Lord and as his Savior. Now, this, now he's writing now in verse 1 to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And he says, greetings. See, James is also Pastor James. And he cared for these precious people and wanted to get this message to them. Again, this is written to Jewish believers who were scattered all over as a result of them putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. James knew how hard it was, especially for the Jew, to become a Christian. Because the result of you putting your faith in Jesus Christ as a Jew meant you would lose your job. You'd be excommunicated from your, from your family, from the Jewish society. Whatever you had would be taken from you. You know, this is true even to this day. Many Jewish families, uh, you know, turn on those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe I'm talking to someone here this morning. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ, your family has cast you out, maybe turned on you. Perhaps you lost a promotion for a job because they found out you were a Christian. Now you feel alienated or mistreated. Maybe a, a brother or sister or mom or dad really doesn't want to have anything to do with you anymore because you're now standing on biblical principles, standing on solid ground after you have the relationship with the Lord. It's at those times that James is going to show us the importance of our faith, which brings us to point number two, the problems for faith. We know that the walk of the believer is not easy. It can be filled with many difficulties. James addresses these problems, such as why does God let calamities come into our lives as Christians? Why does God allow tragedy in the life of believers? Why do we have to face trials? What is their purpose? Is there anything we can do to make it move along a little more quickly? Why are you asking so many questions? No, it doesn't say that, but... Well, why? Because James has the answers. Look at verse 2. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, when you read that, you may say, what kind of bizarro thing to say is that to someone who's suffering? It's like someone who's really having a hard time. And you go, well, cheer up. Put on a happy face. Don't worry. Be happy. You want to punch someone in the face when they say that to you when you're going through a hard time. Is that what James is saying? But yeah and no. He's encouraging them to rejoice, but there's a reason for what he's saying. First of all, let's understand what he's not saying. James is not suggesting that we should necessarily be experiencing some all-encompassing emotion of joy or happiness when we face some heavy trial or circumstance. Oh, I'm just so happy, happy, happy. We had to put our dog to sleep. Oh, so happy. No. Cat, perhaps, but not the dog. Listen, James is not saying the trials themselves are joyous because for the most part, they're not. As the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. 
Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Yet James still says, count it all joy. What does that mean? He said, make a deliberate and careful decision to experience joy in your troubles and in your trials. Is that possible? I would say, yes, it is, but it's just not very easy. Good illustration of this is the story of Paul and Silas who were put in the prison for preaching the gospel. Remember, they'd, they'd been whipped, they'd been beaten, they're, they're fastened into chains, and there they are in this dark dungeon around midnight, and it says Paul and Silas began to sing praises to God. I don't think that was an easy thing to do. But as a result, the, the prisons, prisoners heard them singing. There was an earthquake. The jailer and his whole family got saved. But it all started with Paul and Silas deciding to rejoice with singing in spite of the circumstances. I like the way the Philip's translation puts James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. James is telling us that there are lessons that can only be learned in times of trial as you go through them. You're going to grow in your faith, and that's a good thing. You know, even temptation has a part to play in the spiritual growth of a believer. You might say, oh no, there's nothing good that can come out of a temptation. No, you're wrong. It can be good if you react properly. But if you react improperly, if you give in to it, it's horrible. But if you react properly, if you resist it, you can go stronger as a result. And we'll talk more about dealing with temptation uh, next week, or in our next study. Now notice also what James says in verse 2. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Not if you fall into various trials. That tells us we all are going to face trials. And just because you come to faith in Christ doesn't mean the sky is always going to be blue. You're never going to have a, fat, a flat tie. You're always going to be of good health. No, Jesus says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We all go through trials. The difference is for us as believers, we have Jesus to see us through. And again, notice also what James doesn't say. He doesn't say, count it all joy when you walk into various trials. No, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I think sometimes we walk into trials and problems of our own making, of our own doing. Like the man who was on his lunch break and said to his co-worker, I am so sick of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, to which his buddy said, then tell your wife to pack something different. He said, my wife didn't pack it, I did. Listen, if you know your tire on your car is getting bald and you do nothing about it and you have a flat tire, you can't say, oh, God is taking me through this trial. No, you put yourself there by not getting the tire fixed when you should have. If you go out to dinner every single night but have no money to pay your utility bill at the end of the month, you can't say, oh, the Lord is allowing this financial hardship in my life to teach me something. No, you should know better. You did it to yourself. I'm convinced that many trials we go through are self-inflicted. That we walk into trials and problems of our own making. And they may be the direct direct result of our own laziness, or selfishness, or pride, or greed, or lust, or whatever. We can create our own problems. Or we may go out and break a commandment of God. 
And then when we get angry at the Lord, when we reap the consequences of our sin, oh God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this in my life? God says, hey, listen, friend, you're just reaping what you've sown. You brought this upon yourself. We do create a lot of our own problems. There's no doubt about it. But here James says there's something you should know when you fall into various trials. And he tells us, look at verse 3. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You want to be lacking nothing? Walking in faith so when difficulties hit you, you can stand strong and have increasing joy in your life, then you need to know that it comes through testing. Through the testing of your faith, it produces patience. One translation for the word patience is endurance. Another is steadfastness. Another is staying power. Another translation puts it like this. The trying of your faith produces an heroic endurance. I like that, a heroic endurance. Another says fortitude. Toughness, each one of these terms uh, help us to see the objective. God wants us to have endurance. He wants you to have staying power. He wants you to have fortitude and toughness. And I think for those of you, if, if, if you were in high school and you played football, you know about this. This is right about the time that it's called Hell Week, right? It's commonly called that. Because the training was so intense, so rough, but it was in order for you to learn how to dodge the tackles, to have that endurance, how to react under pressure. By the time it was over, you were stronger, you were more confident. Same thing that God is doing with each one of us. He doesn't want us to be weak or wimpy spiritually. So he allows tests to come our way. And sometimes those tests, those trials come when you least expect it, and you get hit. You get blindsided. But God is saying, listen, I'm doing this. I'm allowing this to toughen you up uh, spiritually, to strengthen those spiritual muscles. I want you to learn how to block and how to hold up that shield of faith and keep on that helmet of salvation in the battle. I want to increase your stamina and ability, so stay with it so you don't fall down. That's what God is doing, spiritual training. Now, those of you that lift weights, you know how it is. You know, you, you, you go, you know, I'm going to go down, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to go to the YMCA, you know, the YMCA. So you get a trainer, and you go to the Y. And they put you on a program. And you do some arm curls, a, a few leg presses, and the trainer says, okay, now let's do this. Lift, lift again. And it seems pretty easy for you. And you get through the whole routine, and they tell you to come back tomorrow. You feel pretty good, a little tired, but, but so you go home. Then you wake up the next morning. Whoa, who ran over me with a bus in the middle of the night? Things have hurt that never hurt ever. And you're going, my toes even hurt. I must have done something wrong. What, what caused this? Yeah, you did something. You exercised. You used muscles that you haven't used in years. So you go to the trainer. And you expect, when you say to him, I, I'm sore, that he'll tell you, oh, I'm so sorry. Why don't you go on home and get some rest? But no, huh? no. Okay, great. Let's do the same routine today. And then he uses that phrase that everyone hates. No pain, no gain. You know the saying. But you say, no, 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 no. My saying is, no pain, no pain. That's my saying. But the trainer says, listen, if you want to be strong, want to be tough, you can't be just sitting around watching others work out. You have to do it for yourself. If you want your heart to be in good shape, you have to, to exercise, jog, walk, get that blood pumping. 
Here's my point. The problem with growing in our faith is often we don't want to. We don't want to go through that trial. We don't want to go through that time of testing or difficulty. But when you do, and we all do, God wants us to know it's only going to make you stronger. So James says, because of that in verse 4, he says, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I like, again, the Phillips translation. It says, let it grow and don't try to squirm out of your problems. For when your patience is finally in full bloom, you are ready for anything, strong in character, full and complete. That's a great translation. Don't try to squirm out of your problems, but let God do what God's going to do because it's for your own benefit, even though you may not see it right now. You see, it's so tempting when you go through times of difficulty to pray, Lord, please take this away. In fact, Paul the Apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, spoke of his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn was specifically. It seems in context as though he's describing a physical infirmity. Some believe that he had impaired eyesight from all the, the stonings and the beatings he went through as he proclaimed the gospel. Someone also said it was probably his ex-wife. I, I, I didn't say it. Someone else said that. We don't even know if Paul was married. But, but Paul asked Lord three times, three times to take this thorn in his flesh away. And what was the Lord's reply, reply to Paul? He says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, my strength shows itself the strongest in your weakest moments. Why did this thorn come to Paul? Well, if you remember, Paul got caught up in the third heaven. He had a vision that, that he was being, you know, not even right to describe what he saw. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, Even though I've received such wonderful revelation from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. See, we don't always know why the Lord allows these things in our life. But we do know that God's strength can show itself strong in my life during my most weakest times. Maybe God is allowing this strong trial in your life. Maybe you've been going through some hardships and are saying, why, Lord, what's the purpose? What's the objective? Maybe he's made it known to you why. Maybe he's not. But know this. God is in control. He is seeking to make you more like Jesus and create in you that family likeness. He's going to cause you, it's going to cause you to be strong and to be tougher so you might have that heroic endurance so you're growing your faith. It's all a part of our Christian life. We may not always know the why. Why did this happen? Or the what? What's going on? But we know the who. We know who's in control. I like the story of Susan. Three-year-old girl lying in her bed. She opens her eyes and she sees the stern face of a man peering down at her. As she screams out in fright, the man quickly shuffles out of the room. Hearing her daughter's scream, Susan's mother runs into the room and holds her tightly. Meanwhile, the man's voice could be heard taking, talking to an accomplice on the telephone. He quickly reappeared, snatches Susan out of her mother's arms, runs down the stairs into a waiting car. Susan screamed as the car sped through the town to a large building. Carried to a fourth floor of this ominous edifice, Susan was placed on the bed and given a shot of a powerful drug. Just before she passes out, Susan looks into the face of yet another stranger. Seconds before he unsheathes a knife and then rips into her stomach. Give those men the death penalty, we would cry. But wait. The man who tore Susan away from her mother was her father. Aware that the daughter had been groaning all night, the call he made was to a doctor who said, bring her in immediately. It sounds like her appendix has burst. The large building was a hospital. The drug was an anesthetic and the knife was a scalpel and the girl was saved. 
From Susan's three-year-old perspective, the events of the evening were understandably terrifying. But from the parents' perspective, they were saving for life. From our perspective, trials and problems may appear terrifying. But God, our Father, has His perspective. And God allows things that we don't understand to come into our lives to make us who we are, strong followers of His Son, Jesus Christ, to help us grow in our faith. And we know Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, it says, so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So in growing in our faith, we must recognize that God, who is the one in control, and He's making in you the person that He wants you to be, doing the work He wants to do in your life. One more thing, trials don't last forever. My favorite verse in the Bible, and it came to pass. Uh, I like that one. Warren Wearsby puts it this way, trials do not last forever. They are for a season. When God permits His children to go through the furnace, He keeps His eye on the clock and His hand on the thermostat. If we rebel, He may have to reset the clock. But if we submit, He will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. The important thing is that we learn the lesson He wants to teach us and that we bring glory to Him alone. So, point number one, the promoter of faith. Point number two, the problems for faith. Last point, point number three, the prayer of faith. James tells us here, it's okay to ask the Lord why. What's going on? What should we do? Look at verse 5. James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you want to grow in your faith, it begins by asking God for wisdom and turning to the Lord in prayer. J.C. Riley uh, puts it this way, Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, and to drive us to our knees. Yes, prayer must always include include praise and thanksgiving to our Lord, to our great God. But prayer is also about petition and asking God when there is a need, when we need to know what to do, what direction to go. So James says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. See, that's the first step in a prayer of faith. Ask God for wisdom. Now, we all know that there are times when we do things that lack wisdom. Many times it is until after the fact and you get home and go, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Politicians are really a a wonderful source of displaying a lack of wisdom. One time George Stephanopoulos appeared as a guest on Larry King Live and he said, the president has kept all of the promises he intended to keep. (laughs) Former U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower was quoted as saying, things are more like they are now than they've ever been before. Okay, that's bright. A lack of wisdom isn't just for college, it isn't for politicians. A college graduate designed this advertisement that read, Illiterate, write today for free help. (laughs) One more, when asked about Russia's attack on Ukraine, President Biden's response was, Putin may circle Kiev with tanks, but he'll never gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. (laughs) I don't think they're trying to gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. Ukrainian, maybe. So James says we need to pray. I say pray especially for our president, but notice it's not so much, Lord, I pray this trial will stop. Lord, take this away from me, please. No, it's Lord, I I want what you want to accomplish through this trial. 
So please give me the wisdom to know what that is. Now, it's not wrong to pray. Like I said, Lord, I pray this trial will stop. Lord, take this away from me, please. Paul did it three times. But James says, we need to put a priority on wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Now, true wisdom wisdom is rooted in the fear and the reverence for God. In, in the book of Job, chapter Job, verse 28, verse 12, it says, but where can wisdom be found and where's the place of understanding? And Job talks about it, discusses it, and then he gets to verse 15 and says, it cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. Goes on in verse 18, no mention shall be made of quarrel or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. Further on in verse 23 and 24 of Job chapter 28, he says, God understands its ways, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heaven. Finally, Job concludes in verse 28, and to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. He figured it out. Understand where wisdom comes from. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, it doesn't matter what type of genius you are. If you are a man or a woman with no fear of God, you have no wisdom. If you really want to understand how to deal with problems, if you really want to understand what's going on, turn to God in prayer. Look to His Word. Until we pray, until we open God's Word, we will never understand what the problem is or what the solution is. Until we do that, there will be increasingly more and more unanswered questions to the things happening in this world around us. And I look around at the things happening in this world around us and it amazes me that people aren't driven to their knees by the tragedies that we're seeing. We see people who are supposedly in the know, the ones who supposedly have answers, spouting off junk, really just playing garbage because they're apart from God. You know, man's wisdom says if we take away guns, there'll be no more shootings in our schools. God's wisdom says as a parent, raise your child in the way that he should go and when they're old, they're not depart from that. Man's wisdom says, oh, there's many genders. God says, no, I created them male and female. That's my wisdom. Man's wisdom says, defund the police, the police department. No more laws. God's wisdom says, sin is lawlessness. So true wisdom comes with the rever- begins with the reverence of God. Wisdom for us as believers is personally connected to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you need wisdom, come to Jesus. Jesus Christ was the perfect expression of the wisdom of God. And if you know Him this morning, if you've received Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, then you're being changed by His wisdom continually, daily, as you seek Him. This is the just of what James is saying here in verse 5. Just ask when you need it, whatever the problem may be. Maybe you don't understand how to deal with a certain problem right now or how to deal with this difficult boss that you have to work with or, or this difficult neighbor or your husband or your wife or your mother-in-law. God is saying, hey, just ask. And understand uh, that James is not saying this is a suggestion. Hey, it might be a good idea. If you don't know what else to do, ask God. No, this is a command. Ask God. Go to Him. Seek Him. Because he is the God who gives wisdom liberally and without reproach. The original language for the phrase, the God who gives, it emphasizes giving as a majestic characteristic of God. This, this, uh, the scriptures are overflowing with that aspect of, of, of our God. 
Giving is the characteristic of our God, isn't it? Acts chapter 17, verse 25. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 8, 32. He did, who did not spare His own Son but delivered up, up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? See, God's wisdom is like a large pitcher of fresh, cold water just to be waiting to pour on His children if they would just ask. Listen, prayer opens the door to what God wants to do in my life. He's just waiting for me to come to Him in prayer. Let me say that again. Prayer opens the door of what God wants to do in my life. He's just waiting for me to come to Him in prayer and ask. He's ready to give me wisdom, liberally and without reproach. You know, as parents, I think sometimes we do give our kids wisdom, but it usually comes with a reproach. I'll tell you what to do this time, but next time, try using your head. You know, next time, man, you need to pay more attention. Next time, or just don't ask me again. But I love the Lord's response. I'm glad you asked. Here it comes. Liberally, no reproach. I love the story told by C.H. Spurgeon. He says, A benevolent person gave Mr. Roland Hill a hundred pounds to dispense to a poor minister a bit at a time, thinking it was too much to send him all at once. Mr. Hill forwarded five pounds in a letter, with only these words written inside the envelope, more to follow. In a few days' time, the good man received another letter. The second messenger contained another five pounds with the same note, more to follow. A day or two after came a third and fourth and still the same promise and more to follow. This went on for quite some time. Spurgeon goes on to say, every blessing that comes from God is sent with the same message and more to follow. I forgive your sins, but there's more to follow. I justify you in the righteousness of Christ, but there's more to follow. I adopt you into my family, but there's more to follow. I prepared you for heaven, but there's more to follow. I give you grace upon grace, but there's more to follow. I have helped you even to old age, but there's still more to follow. He says, I will uphold you in the hour of death, and as you are passing into the next world, my mercy shall still continue with you, and when you're led in the world to come, there shall still be more to follow. Finally, James says, if you're going to pray needs to be a prayer of faith. Look at verses 6 to 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for you doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let him ask in faith without doubting. In other words, the request for wisdom must be backed by a genuine trust and faith in God's character, His purposes, His promises for you as a believer. But some Christians, they come to God and ask doubting that God will give them what they need. And they rationalize uh, to God. Perhaps you've come to God and you've done this. You come to God and you say, well, I need wisdom, but if I, if I don't receive it, I understand because I really don't deserve it. Which is true. But it's irrelevant. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've had your sins forgiven, you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you're born again, then the point is irrelevant. God didn't say, come to me, all of you who deserve it. Because none of us would be Christians then. He says, come to me because you don't deserve it. And I'll give you rest. You know, it doesn't work the other way around either. Lord, Lord uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't hang around with girls that do so. so I, you need to answer me this question. You need to do this for me. No, there's no amount of good things that you're going to do that you're going to go, okay, if I do this, then God's going to do this for me. 
You see, it doesn't work that way. Another excuse for not coming to God, and it's a common one. Well, I'm not going to bring this need to God because it's just, it's just a little thing, and I don't want to bug God with that. I'll just handle it. Listen, God is concerned with the little things in our lives as well. Big or small, in God's infinite grace and love, He chooses to give us wisdom and to take interest in the things we and others may think are insignificant. So when you come to God, you need to believe, you need to ask in faith. A request that doesn't take God at His word is, is presumptuous. It's worthless. Coming to God and asking for wisdom, but not taking God at His word. It's like a kid coming to his dad who's a master mechanic and, and, and says, Dad, how does this car work? And then he says, oh, never mind, I'll, I'll figure it out. Or it's like a, a mom, perhaps she's just a phenomenal cook, and your daughter asks, Mom, how can you cook that special dish you make? Oh, never mind, I'll ask someone else. Wouldn't that be a slap in, in your face? God says, when you come to me, ask, don't doubt me. Again, Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For you who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a reward of those who diligently seek him. James says, but if he doubts, he's like a wave of the sea driven back and forth, tossed in the wind, out in the sea, you know, you know, bobbing up and down, up and down, black and forth, back and forth. That's the picture James paints here of the kind of a man's instability. He's double-minded. He's got divided interests. He wants God to do what he wants God to do and nothing else. It's kind of, you know, a split personality Christian. Listen, there, there are three ways to approach trials. Faith says yes. Unbelief says no. Doubt says yes and no at the same time. See, double-minded Christians want to do it their way, yet they still want God to do it His way. They want some of God and some of themselves. But God's not going to play that game. He wants the whole shebang. God is saying, if you're going to bring this need to me, then you need to turn the whole thing over to me. You can't have it both ways. Oftentimes, people will come to me for counseling. And they'll say to me, well, I'm just praying that God would do this, God will do that. But after we pray, and I show them from God's Word that that's not the will of God, they still go out and do what they want to do in the first place, what God didn't do for them. Take marriage, for example. My husband isn't treating me like he should. I just wish God would let me out of this marriage. But listen, God only teaches teaches that that for adultery or abandonment does God allow you to to divorce. Well, thanks, Pastor, for that counsel. And then they go and they get a divorce and leave the church and go somewhere else because they don't want to face having not done what God's Word says. God's Word has something very strong to say about someone like that. God says, don't expect to receive anything from me. If you're just going to go out and do your own thing, then why even come to me in the first place? We must believe. As we close, as we enter the time of communion, do you want wisdom? I hope you do this morning. There was an old song years ago, some of you might remember, by Malcolm and Alwyn. Uh, I know Malcolm's a pastor now, but it's called Fool's Wisdom. And I love the beginning of the words of the, the song. It goes, Got myself some wisdom from the leatherback book got myself a savior when I took a second look. You need wisdom. Go to God's word. And as you do, you'll find the savior. In your tribulation, in your present difficulty, come to Jesus. Ask for wisdom, prayerfully and humility, knowing that God wants to speak to you personally and that he has abundant wisdom for you. But he's just, again, waiting for you to seek him, 
you know, pour it out. Prayer is the key. Again, prayer is, is the, uh, what opens the door to what God wants to do in your life. He's just waiting for you to come to Him and ask. Maybe you're going through a difficult time right now. Understand, Jesus understands. The greatest trial Jesus ever faced was going to the cross for my sin, for your sin. The Bible says as He was there in the garden, as He was praying, He sweat as it were great drops of blood. But then He said to His Father in Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed, if there's any other way to save mankind from their sin, any other way, Father, would you do it? If not, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Can you pray that? Lord, I know you can take this trial away if you want to, but not my will, yours be done. Lord, God, I believe 100% that you can heal me right now if you want to. But not my will. Yours be done. Listen, Jesus gave his life freely for us, accepted it as the will of the Father. And that's what communion is all about as we enter into communion. It's about coming back to the cross. It's about seeing what Jesus did for us. That awesome sacrifice that he made. So as we come to this time, come to the communion table, it's a time that we can come to the Lord. We can ask for wisdom. We can pray. We can worship Him. Spend this time in His presence. But let me say this communion is for believers. If you're here and you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, it's not for you. Now, if you want to give your life to Christ this morning, which I would strongly encourage you to do, then partake of communion with us. would love to be a part of the family of God. Come to Him. Ask you to forgive you of your sin. You become a family of God. God will answer that prayer right away. So we're going to spend time in communion. Uh, my prayer, uh, again, is that we can examine our lives and see what God has done and know that He's in control. He's a great God and our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time that we can spend in communion. Jesus, thank You for what You did for us upon the cross. As You sweat there in that garden and the blood came down, You knew what light I had for You. You knew the trial that you were going to face. You knew the beatings you were going to face. You knew the the whippings, the pulling out of your beard, the crown of thorns that were going to go on your head. You knew that you'd be carrying a cross up a hill and that soon that your arms would be uh, nailed to that cross, your hands would be nailed to that cross, your feet would be nailed to that cross, and they would lift it up. And that you would give your life for us. Lord, you could have at any time said, Nope, I'm not going to do it. But you loved us so much that you gave your life to us. You gave. You're such a giving God, a loving God. We thank you for that. For Without that, we would not be here this morning. There would be no sacrifice for our sins. Your word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Bless our time together. As we pass out the juice, as we pass out the bread, Lord, that we remember that awesome sacrifice that was made for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.